to the book of Amos. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> if you turn to Amos, we're going to be in chapter 5 today. My encouragement is to, uh, is to find comfort. Uh, this is an exciting passage. Uh, Amos is a small little book. It's found on page 975 in your, in your hymnals. I mean, in your hymnals. In the... In the the Bible's where the hymnals might be. Uh, if you look there in chapter 5, it's not that many verses. There's only 25 of them. But we're going to be, be focusing on verse 18. Uh, also, we'll be focusing starting in verse 14 and also verse 24. The key points are found in 14, uh, 18, and 24. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word as it was given to us in the originals. Uh, This is God's word coming from the preacher named Amos about 800 years before Jesus came and stepped foot on this earth or came for Christmas. Uh, But these words were to God's people in the northern kingdom. Let us hear them beginning in verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live so that the Lord, the God of hosts will be with you as as you have said. Hate evil. And love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord. In all the squares there shall be wailing. And in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas. They shall call for the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all vineyards there shall be wailing. For I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? For it is darkness, it is not light. If a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned on his hand against the wall, and a serpent then bit him, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? Verse 21, I hate and despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. May the Lord bless this word. Last week we read portions of it and we saw it from the helicopter view. We saw a little bit more of the big picture of of his sermon. But today we see something a little bit more focused in verse 18 where there's a misunderstanding. The people of God just don't get it. And the question sometimes is, is did they ever get Christ at all? Because when they look in verse 18 and he says, woe to you. There is something that really shakes you up. And what did they get wrong? They didn't get the day of the Lord right. They didn't understand it. It was confusing. So in today's message, we're going to be able to tackle some of those things. But in order to put it into context and to help you go with me, I want to take one of the recent movies, a cartoon that was on the theaters. Uh, My family liked it. It was with Peabody and Sherman. Did you ever watch that one? Okay, when you watch that show, the way that it made it very interesting was that there was a time machine. 
And so Peabody built this time machine to take Sherman throughout time and teach him history by watching it in real time. It's really kind of an interesting kind of a play. But I want to be able to take you in this time machine back to when communion was established. Back in the 1500s before Christ. Where are we going to go? You know, this is like one of those Jeopardy questions. You're supposed to buzz in now, right? Do you have any idea what was 1,500 years before Christ? Who was the key character? Maybe the other clue will help you. When you're talking about the roots of communion, when did it get established? When did God say, this is the way it's supposed to be? Okay, the key word is Passover. And if you understood that key concept of Passover, that was established in Exodus chapter 12. Now, pastor, what does that have to do with what we're preaching on in Amos? Well, I want you to know that Amos was a preacher man, and he had the Old Testament available to him, at least the early writings, and he was actually thinking about the book of Exodus. How do I know this? Because Egypt was on his mind. If you go into your, if you look back in chapter 3, you can see how he mentions Egypt by name, along with the, uh, the people along the coast, in order to come to observe the injustices in Samaria. He's been thinking about Egypt because... They're, they're in his mind. He says, the Egyptians should come up here and see the sin up here. That was what I preached last week. But in chapter 4, he actually specifically mentions Egypt again. And he says, God is going to bring plagues on the northern tribes that are going to compare to the plagues in Egypt. That's just not an illusion. That is actually a statement. This is what's on his mind. So we're in chapter 5 now. And it's kind of interesting that when you get through chapter 5 and you look to some of those verses where it says the Lord is going to pass through your midst, look at verse 17. And in all your vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. I don't know if you catch it or not, but the imagery of the 11th, or excuse me, of the, yeah, the 11th, the 10th plague is before you. Because he's just about ready to talk about the day of the Lord. And in his mind, he's already thinking about a day of the Lord from the past. When God's Holy Spirit, we call it the angel of death, came over the whole land of Egypt to pass through it. And it was not a beautiful thing. For when this angel of the Lord, and if you were with me with Peabody and we're looking at what's going on in Egypt at that time... When the angel of death passed by, what did you hear? You heard the wailing because the death of the firstborn of everybody. Am I right? No, I'm not right. It wasn't the death of the firstborn of everybody. It was only the death of the firstborn of everyone who did not have what applied to their door. The blood. And so that's where you get the terminology that when I see the blood, when I pass through... I will pass over that house and judgment will not come because judgment already has been. You see, double jeopardy. It's, it's the, the issue that they're talking about O.J. Simpson with the knife and all that kind of stuff that's back in the news. Well, you can't judge somebody when, when the judgment already has been rendered. And this comes back to the Passover. Exodus chapter 12. Now, if you come back to the real time now, and we're looking at Amos's life, I wanted you to see that in your mind, that this is what Amos was thinking about. But in Amos chapter 4, the application is, people, people of God, prepare to meet your God. Chapter 4 is such a powerful statement. 
God is, is real. Are you ready to meet him? Is he that significant in your life? I mean, the fact that you're here at church today tells me that you did prepare and that you are preparing. But Amos is preaching to a group of people that don't really think about God like that because their affluence, their ease. Now, for applications for us today are very, very similar to this one where he says, prepare to meet thy God. Because if you went to the apostle, you would find that when you come to communion in chapter 11 of Corinthians, he tells people that when you come to this table, you're supposed to examine yourself. And that is in chapter 1126. That's what it means to prepare yourself to encounter God, to be in his presence. But if you went to the book of John, 1 John, uh, there's a lot of people who say that they, when they examine themselves, they say that they have no sin. And what are they? They're deceiving themselves. They're liars. We need to prepare to meet with our God. Because as Jesus himself said, if you go to Luke 6, uh, where I wanted to be able to say, Jesus said, you should be discerning. You should be looking at, at sin. But he says, you need to look at your own sin first. And if you remember the text, it says uh, that you ought to uh, take the speck out of your own eye when you yourself don't see the log that is in your own eye. In a sense, you should be critical, not of everybody else, but of yourself, because the critical eye is the one that still has blocked vision. If you still have the beam in your own eye, you're not going to be able to see clearly to help somebody else. And so the issue when you say prepare to meet your God, prepare for the Lord's table, this is an application for us. And I believe that as we look at the book of Amos, we're getting prepared because he deals with sin. Amos is a preacher of God's word. He's dealing with a culture that parallels ours. The people were doing very well. I always kind of get the concept that, uh, that they, they, don't, they, they stop saying in God we trust in northern Israel. It was in us we trust because they had replaced the need for having the sovereign God for a God of their own making. And that's why we had lots of small G's that Amos dealt with in previous sermons. But before I jump there, I need to make sure I clarify something for you. The day of the Lord is different from the Lord's day. It's also different from the day of Christ. When you go through the scripture, you're going to find these different phrases in there. And I'm not sure if you know the distinction. So by way of introduction, I want to get that out of the way so we can jump into the text. First of all, I want you to know what the Lord's Day is. The Lord's Day is different from the day of the Lord because the Lord's Day is what we reference as the first day of the week. You find that in the Gospel of John in numerous places. But what is focused on the first day of the week? Why do we get into the first day in, instead of the Sabbath day, which was the seventh? What happened was that on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead, and after that point in time, all the disciples used to meet on that first day of the week in order to worship God because they were celebrating the resurrection from the dead. So the Lord's Day is the first day of the week. It's Sunday. And the reason why we're gathering in church on Sunday is because we're celebrating the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection, which still keeps the pattern of the week, but we focus not on the day at the end we start the beginning 
And that's how the resurrection, we have a newness of life. That's the idea, the distinction. Now, in the New Testament, there is talk about the the day of Christ. And if I went to some of those passages, you'd be able to see that too, that the days of Christ might be from Philippians or from 2 Thessalonians. I'll read from from Philippians 1.10. That you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. What is the day of Christ that Paul is talking about in Philippians? Well, he says it to the same group in Thessalonica. He says that you be not soon shaken in your mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by the letter from us as that day of Christ is at hand. It's near. It has come. Now, when you think about this for a moment, the day of Christ is different from the day of the Lord. The day of Christ is going to be when Jesus comes back, when we get to see him, which matches up a lot more like it says in Acts 1. When he ascended to heaven, the angel said, this same Jesus will come again in like manner as you have seen him go. The day of Christ is when Jesus returns. The day of the Lord is something different. Do you see the distinction? I'm hoping you're begging the question, well, what is the day of the Lord? Okay, first of all, I want to tell you, it's not a calendar day per se. It is a real day on the calendar, but there's many days of the Lord. And the the first introduction to this concept is right here in Amos. Since he's one of the earliest prophets, he introduces this concept. So a day of the Lord, if I get my language right, is any crisis in the nation's history where God interposes punishment to correct When the day of the Lord comes into your world, it's a day of correction. It's a day when God says, enough. It's a day when God says, I'm going to do something about it. The day of the Lord. Now, when the prophets spoke about the days of the Lord, I told you Amos did it, Joel did it, Isaiah did it. You can find it even in Malachi. You know, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he's going to send somebody like the prophet Elijah. There's all these kind of guys talking about the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath being poured out. Now, that's an understanding. So if we go through, I want you to see three things in Amos' message that help to explain this as we were introduced in verse 18. Because he says, woe to you that don't get the day of the Lord right. My fear is is that even in this church, we may not get the day of the Lord right. So he gives us an appeal, he gives us an admonition, and he gives us an affirmation. The appeal is seen in the verses that precede, beginning in verse 18. I mean, excuse me, in verse 14. He starts off with an appeal, and it's really kind of interesting, as I was reflecting upon it. This is such good news, where he says, seek good and not evil. And what's the next phrase? So that you may live. It's really kind of interesting that in the midst of this time where he says the day of the Lord is going to be coming, he has just given them something beautiful to think about. Do you want to live? Is that the desire of your heart? Jesus was one who told us about living in John chapter 5 and in John chapter 10. I keep thinking in John 10 with the great shepherd. He ends up coming. He says, I have come to give you life that you might have it more abundantly. You see, this is a beautiful thing. And Amos was telling the people of God from the northern kingdom, you can live. It's not all gloom and doom. He's offering them this appeal, and it is a sense of grace. This is the gospel being communicated. 
He says, you may live. And if you look at the end of verse 15, it says, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious. Now, he says he might be gracious to these descendants of Joseph. And if you think about that, Joseph was the favored son out of Egypt. When he came, he got two tribes in the land of Israel, not just one. And when he came up, they probably had lots of wealth, lots of riches, and it was a pretty big tribe, Manassas and Ephraim. And so when, when he, Manasseh and Ephraim kind of took over the northern kingdom, and in a sense, even their first king, Jeroboam, he had Egyptian connections. So they kept those fellowship, those ties. And so when they says, God may even be gracious to you, you guys who, who still connect to Egypt, who haven't let go of that bondage. Do you, do you hear it? The grace of God is coming even to people who have been bad, 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 bad. And he still says, You may live. God may extend his grace to you to save you. This is the same message for all of us today. Wherever we find ourselves, whether you're in Cape High School, whether you're not, whether you live anywhere in coastal Sussex or if you're a visitor, God's grace can be extended to you. Now, it's interesting how he presents the gospel. He says, seek good and not evil. And in verse 15, he says, hate that evil and love what's good. Establish justice in your community. This is what Amos is trying to tell them, that one of the antidotes to the current sin plague that's among them is that they ought to start doing things that are beautiful, things that are holy and just and lovely. All those things that Philippians 4.8 tells us in the New Testament. Now, is that the gospel? No. Because you're not saved by being good. You're not even saved by hating evil. I just want you to know that there is no salvation in that message, but there is hope. There is grace. He's trying to tell them that God's wrath is poured out against sin. So if you're not sinning, then God's wrath is not going to be poured out on you. Do you see the holiness of God? Even as you hear the grace. I'm going to get to the gospel in just a moment. But that first point is this appeal, and it's put before us. And if you look at verse 16 that follows, he says there's going to be wailing in the streets. There's going to be farmers called the morning. And then in verse 17, there's going to be more wailing in the vineyards. All of these things are saying, when God shows up in your camp, when he passes through, it's going to be a lot like it was in the days of Egypt. Chapter 12 of Exodus. Now, then there comes this admonition. Because they were understanding that. I think those northern people knew this history. They had not forgotten about the ten plagues. Because when he mentioned them in the previous sermon, they knew what he was talking about. But they misunderstood the application of the Lord's day. You see, because... When it gets to verse 18 and he says, whoa, you guys, wait, time out. You're you're, you're missing it. He says, when the Lord comes into your midst, and, and as it was back in the days in Exodus 12, when the Lord came through and he brought judgment, where did the judgment typically fall in Egypt? Was it on the Egyptians or was it on the Jews? It was on the Egyptians because most of the Jews had blood on their doorposts. So when these people from the northern kingdom that Amos is preaching to, he says, you guys, you like that story when God comes and he, and, he does, and he brings judgment on the bad people, right? But then he says, whoa, time out. Don't be deceived. You're not the good people that he's going to pass over. You guys are the bad people. You're just like the Egyptians. Do you see it? 
Woe to you who look forward to the day of the Lord. You guys don't get it because God is a holy God. And Exodus 34, 7 says, he will by no means clear the guilty. How significant is sin? Is it just itty-bitty? Those little white lies, they're no big deal, right? If you think about the answer to my question, how important is sin? Just look at the cross. How many sins did it take for Jesus to figure he'd go to the cross? Was it, it 10,000 sins? Would he have gone to the cross? In order for any of us to be saved, he would have had to go even if there was just one sin. The wage of a sin is death. And the holy God has to punish sin. And that's why he says, you don't want to be in there when the day of the Lord comes, when the holy God shows up in your camp. That's a dangerous place. So look at verse 19, if you'll follow along with me. In verse 19, he says, this day of the Lord is like darkness. It's not light. Verse 19, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or he went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? (laughs) You just got to digest that for a moment. The day of the Lord. It is a terrible thing. There is isolating darkness. Isolating darkness. It's not light down there. You're in the dark. And when you're in the dark, you are alone. You are in isolation. When God's judgment comes upon you, you can't say, oh, well, look at over there. They're suffering too. No. You'll be cut off from God's grace. The day of the Lord is a dangerous place to be. Isolating darkness. And then he goes on. It's inescapable. Inescapable reach. Because then he uses this great illustration. He says, when the lion of Judah roars, you might think you might run away, but then you're going to run into the, the bear of God. You can talk to Elisha's people who, you know, they ran into the bears too. But, or you can say, oh, if you escape those, then you go to your house where you think you have safety. And he says, you lean up against it. And what happens? You get a serpent that bites you and you're dead. The whole point of this is where are you going to flee from the day of the Lord? From the wrath of God that's poured out on sin. Can you get away from it? Maybe if we just go to Tahiti, we would get away from it, right? Talk to Jonah. Jonah thought that if he got on a boat, he could get to to Tarshish and it would be all okay, right? If you fall into that trap of thinking that you can escape God, the holiness of God, you're self-deceived. It is isolating Uh, uh, darkness. It is inescapable reach. And the third thing about it, if you look at the text, it talks about gloom. It is utter hopelessness. I'm telling you, he is describing what it is to be under God's wrath. It's a terrible thing. Actually, I should probably put it with tears in my eyes. It is the worst thing that ever could be. To be cut off from God's grace. To get the wrath of God poured out on you. And it's only poured out on sinners. And if any of you know what sin is, or if you've ever experienced it, or maybe you are one, then the wrath of God is due upon you because the wages of sin is death. This message that Amos preaches just doesn't end there. There is an affirmation. When you look at the, as I told you, jump down to verse 24. 
After he's dealt with a lot of these things and he's told them, your religious services, all the stuff that goes on, he says it's not good enough. And by the way, he even mentions music in here. The noise of your songs in verse 23 or the melody of your instruments. He says, God says, I'm not listening to them anymore. It's almost like he's got his fingers in his ears. He says, just because you go to church and just because you're trying to appease God, just because you're going through the motion, just because you're trying to dress nice. Do you get it? I mean, the application is so clear for us today. If you go through the motions of being religious, God says, no way. No matter how good or how poor your music is. And by the way, music is not worship. Music is, is the it's, it's, it's a doorway that gets you to meet with God. And the doors can be closed sometimes, and sometimes you have your ears plugged in. Don't be like that. Don't, frustrate, don't be frustrated by music. Come and meet with God. Because what he's saying is, you can do all your music. You can have it in big pageantry stuff. You can have great feasts, and you can do this. But I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to be there. You're not going to fix the problem that my wrath has to deal with. The day of the Lord is coming because sin hasn't been atoned for. And that's why I take you to verse 24 as an application where he says uh, this affirmation, but let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The commentators have lots of different opinions on this, but I just look at the natural thing, and it's part of what came yesterday in our prayer meeting. The men at prayer, we got together. The snow was melting, and when we're sitting there in the quietness of the room praying, you could just hear the water dripping from the, from, the, uh, from the roof down through the downspout. And it was... And you could just hear how gravity was pulling the melted water down to the ground. And I was just thinking about how justice is rolling down like water. You didn't have to tell the water to go down, did you? Does anybody have to get up there and sweep the roof so that it will finally know which way to go? The whole point that he's making, it's obvious and it's clear that God's justice is going to come. It's like gravity. God's already set it in motion that the justice of God is going to flow. Now, for those of us that have felt the weight of what I just preached point two, the wrath of God's day, the day of God's coming. If you heard and I appreciated that feedback, nobody wants to be going to hell. Nobody in their right mind does. Nobody wants to say, well, I'll deal with this tomorrow if you don't know that you have tomorrow. Because nobody wants to experience that, utter, that, that isolating darkness and that unreachable, I mean, and that, 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 that inescapable reach or that utter gloom. Nobody wants that. But justice is bringing that down on every sinner. And that's why when he says that justice is going to flow, I want to finish this sermon and take us to the table by telling you, by getting back in Peabody's time machine. And I want to take you to another day of the Lord. If you'll go with me, I want to take you to Joel, but I don't have enough time to take you to Joel, so let's go to Acts chapter 2. If you go to Acts chapter 2, you're going to see the same kind of thing unfolding. For the passage says in Joel... The day of the Lord is at hand as destruction from the mighty one. He says, blow the trumpets, chapter 2, for the day of the Lord comes, it's near at hand. And in verse 31, the sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, for great and terrible is the day of the Lord. I wasn't going to dwell there. I wanted to dwell in Acts chapter 2. 
Now, for those of you that have joined me with Peabody and we've gone through, we've left the 1500s, we've left the 800s where Amos is, and we're into the early 30s A.D. In the early 30s, there we are in Jerusalem and Passion Week. You know what's going on? Jesus has been hoisted up on a cross. They just put that sign above him, King of the Jews. There's been mocking and beatings. Jesus is unrecognizably, he is, he is unrecognizable. He is miserable. He's despised and rejected. Nobody is looking at him and saying, wow, let's follow Jesus. And in the midst of that, the earth shakes. The sky is darkened. The sun refuses to shine, as the lyrics of one song put it. Now, I'm in Acts chapter 2, which is about seven weeks later. The apostle Peter stands up, and as he's about to preach, it's pretty powerful as he starts to explain this. In Acts chapter 2, he says, This Jesus that you have crucified, this Jesus is the one that all of these events that you've witnessed the sun was darkened and all these things. This is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. The day of the Lord that Joel was talking about. When, the, when, the, when, the, uh, when God showed up to bring his wrath was in AD 33. When the spirit of God came down at Golgotha and was poured out. And the wailing in the streets on that day was not because of the firstborns of everybody else, but it was because of the firstborn, the only begotten of the Father, who was dying there on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The Lamb of God, as John the Baptizer put it, that Lamb of God, His blood was being applied to the doorposts of our hearts. Joel said, it's going to be a terrible day. And Peter says, it was a terrible day. It was Good Friday. Do you understand the wrath of God that has to come upon sin? When we come to the table now, this is not a place of wrath. Because this is like an arrow that points back to that. Judgment does not come, finish it, where judgment has already been. If you get the gospel right, then there's nothing to fear. The day of the Lord is not something we have to be afraid of. In fact, instead, we look to the Lord's day to celebrate, and we look to the day of Christ when we get to be with him, with our new bodies. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, there are many things that could be said, but if the gospel is clear in our hearts, I pray that we might repent of our sins. If there's someone here today who gets it for the first time, that the soul that sins will surely die, but the soul who's already had the blood applied, the blood of Christ, need not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, I pray that we might get the gospel right. I pray that if someone is trusting in Christ for the first time today, that they would come see one of the elders, that we might clarify and celebrate. For when a sinner repents, the angels rejoice in heaven and the saints of God rejoice on earth. Oh Lord, I pray that you'll prepare us now for this sacrament of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.
if the elders would come forward at this time. I wanted to be able to tell you that the Apostle Paul told us to prepare to meet our God. And what is the one thing you need to know about our God? Is that he is no respecter of persons, that he brings judgment upon anyone who's a sinner. Every sin has to be paid for. Do you have sins that haven't been paid yet? Do you have any accounts that you have never taken to the Lord and asked for forgiveness? Are you holding grudges? Are you having a bitter spirit? This is the time to get right with God. The day of the Lord to come into your world is a terrible thing if you're not forgiven. I want to encourage you, come before the Lord. Come humbly. As John said in 1 John, confess your sins, for he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray for these elements, O Lord. I pray that you'll take these simple things, the bread and the juice, the things that you have appointed there in the upper room. You said no more, no more meat, no more dead animals be needed for this ceremony. No more blood actually needs to be shed because once the Lamb of God shed his blood, our sacrament is bloodless. And now we simply remember our Lord's death until he comes. Lord, make this memory fresh in our minds. Help us to treasure that the death of Jesus was for us. It was to atone for our sin. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will make, these, make this meal meaningful in our lives. Not just a memorial. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night in which he was betrayed, he took the cup and he also took the bread. I want to start with the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He was there in the upper room there on Mount Zion, and it was just going to be a matter of hours before he was betrayed by Judas and escorted to be the trials to take place before that humiliating crucifixion in his last breath where he uttered, it is finished. Jesus' body was being broken for you and I. The wrath of God, the day of the Lord, was being demonstrated for us. And he says, the bread you eat is not that He says, you just identify with me as you partake, demonstrating that your sins were taken to the cross when he went there. Let us hold the bread until we all can partake together.
Let us partake. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you not only took on your body our sin, you took it to the cross. We thank you that you paid for it in full. We thank you that you took the wrath of God upon sin. We thank you in Jesus' name. The cup, similarly, as Jesus took it that night in the upper room, and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He says, this is poured out for many. It was not for all, but it was for those whom he was going to save. And I pray that your name is included in that list, that God would bring salvation to you. For as the cup is passed, you'll, you'll know as we partake that we are united in the body of Christ, and it is a sweet cup. It is not bitter Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said it so well. Father, can you take this cup of wrath away? Do I have to go through the day of the Lord? And the Father said, there's no other way. And Jesus took it. He drank it in full on Calvary. So that we would not have to. Let us hold the cup until we all partake together. As the cup is coming around, I wanted to actually read what Peter said about the day of the Lord in that sermon. The Holy Spirit had come upon him. There were the the tongues of fire were upon the people. Peter stands up to preach. There's going to be 3,000 people converted. Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and he addressed the people. You men of Judea and all who dwell in this area, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you might think, since it's only the third hour of the day. He says, this is what happened in the day of the Lord. This is what happened, what was uttered by the prophet Joel. And he quotes, and in the last days it shall be that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on the flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on every male servant and female servant in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall proclaim or prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great day of the Lord comes and great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Brothers, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, a man attested to you by God with signs and works and wonders, he did all these things. This Jesus has fulfilled it. When you think about all the things of the day of the Lord, 
there in the Passion Week. All those details were fulfilled, even with the earth shaking and the, and the sky being darkened. As Jesus was taking the cup of God's wrath. He told us in the upper room, this cup is the new covenant. Drink ye of this cup. I thank you for the sweetness of this communion. I thank you that the day of the Lord is nothing we have to fear anymore because the cup of wrath has already been drunk. Lord, I thank you that as Peter declared it, we can now see that what prophet the Joel was talking about, even what Amos was referring to, was that there was coming a time when God's wrath would be satisfied. We thank you for this good news that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ in which we place our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and let's conclude with our...